0: Hey everyone, Eric here. Just before we get to today's show, I want to let you know that we're offering our podcast listeners a special 20% lifetime discount to the China-Africa Daily Brief. Now that's the newsletter that Cobus and I produce every day that provides the most comprehensive digest of everything China's doing on the continent, and now increasingly throughout the global south. In addition to the newsletter, you'll also get full archive access to the website and the China Africa Experts Network as well. To get that discount, just go to chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe and use the promo code podcast at checkout. Once again, that's chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe.
1: The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP aims to improve the quality of reporting on Africa-China relations through reporting grants, workshops, and other opportunities for journalists. More information at africachinareporting.co.za and our dedicated training website at africachinatraining.com.
0: Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from sub-China. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus.
2: Good afternoon.
0: Today, we're going to revisit the issue of Chinese loans to developing countries. Now, this has been a topic of considerable discussion over the past few months. There have been a number of reports that have come out from groups like the Global Development Policy Center at Boston University and the China Africa Research Initiative at Johns Hopkins University that all show there's been a dramatic fall in lending from China's major policy banks. Now, If you missed those discussions that we had with Kevin Gallagher and Deborah Braudigam, I highly recommend that you go onto our website and take a listen because they're both highlighting some very important trends. But today we're not going to focus on the amount of money that China's lending, but rather the contracts that are used for those loans. It's remarkable that in the 20 years since China's become the world's largest official creditor with lending amounts that are now comparable to what the World Bank gives out, We know very little about how Chinese loan contracts are written and what the terms and conditions are of those loans. Now, these contracts are bound by strict secrecy clauses that for the most part have kept them way out of public sight, making it almost impossible for anyone other than those who are literally in the room actually signing the documents to know what's in those deals. Uh, Of course, and I know some people may say this, there have been a few contracts that have leaked out over the years But we were never sure if what was in those individual contracts were terms that were unique to that specific deal or representative of a broader trend of how the Chinese actually structured their contracts. Now, Cobus, you said something very interesting in a column that you wrote for our newsletter subscribers earlier this week about how corrosive all that secrecy is for everyone involved. Tell us a little bit more about that
2: well you know it, it makes it harder for for populations in africa to to judge whether whether the loans taken out by their governments in their name that they will then be on the hook to repay will actually deliver what they want to deliver and you know in in some cases the the, the secrecy secrecy goes so far that it's not only the terms of the loans that are that are off limits but but even the existence of the loan itself so you know kind of it it, it just strikes one particularly in in a in a in a context like Africa, where people are both, uh, where populations are both poor and young, um, it strikes one that that. that you know, decisions are made about their future, um, their financial future, that, that they're not consulted in. Um, and, you know, and, and that level of secrecy also then makes it very difficult for, for anyone to really gauge, you know, how effectively those loans have been applied and, you know, and and how, how useful they've been.
0: Well, for the first time, we now have a better, more comprehensive understanding of what's actually in these loan contracts. A new report just came out entitled How China Lends and they analyzed 100 debt contracts between Chinese state-owned entities and government borrowers in 24 countries for projects worth just under $37 billion. The report was a joint effort by researchers at AidData at William & Mary College, the Kiel Institute for the World Economy in Germany, uh, the Center for Global Development, and the Peterson Institute for International Economics in Washington, D.C. Brad Parks, who's the executive director over at AidData and was one of the authors on that team, He's here to join us, and we're thrilled to have Brad back on the show again after four years. Brad, welcome back. Yeah, thank you. I'm glad to be back. Well, it's great to have you back. Congratulations on the report. It was very, very important. I called it when I was writing about it a landmark report because, again, we haven't seen this type of data before. Uh, Just before we get into our conversation, I'd also like to acknowledge your co-authors on the report, Anna Gelpern, Sebastian Horn, Scott Morris, and Christoph Trebesh as well. Everybody contributed, and I'm sure there were probably a lot of people behind the scenes as well who worked with you. Oh, three years it took you to actually do this report, so a lot of hard work went into it. One of the key takeaways from the report is that the Chinese seem to use a very different approach to lending money to developing countries compared to those of other major international creditors. I mean, from the secrecy to the clauses to how the money is filed through to the repayment and whatnot... Give us a little bit of an overview about some of the differences that came out in your research about how the Chinese lend money.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So um, I guess I would summarize the the three key differences between Chinese loan contracts and um, uh, debt contracts that are issued by other bilateral lenders, multilateral lenders or commercial lenders um, are kind of first related to confidentiality. Um, Second, related to um, seniority and uh, the collateralization of debt that um, enables uh, debt seniority. And then uh, the final um, issue that I'll I'll just briefly speak to is um, this issue of the inclusion of clauses that limit the policy options of uh, borrower countries. So on the first Uh, kind of key finding. We do find that Chinese contracts, debt contracts, contain unusually broad confidentiality clauses that bar the borrowers from revealing the terms or even the very existence of the loans. And so, you know, as as uh, your listeners um, may be aware, you know, sovereign debt transparency, it's a major problem for OECD and non-OECD lenders. However, Our analysis in this new report, How China Lends, suggests that Chinese lenders are far more likely than others to obtain uh, broad confidentiality commitments uh, from from borrowing countries. We also find that China's debt contracts have become more secretive over time. So uh, there's this cut point. Into, we look at uh, debt contracts between 2000 and uh, 2020, and we find this kind of cut point in 2014, which incidentally is the you know, first full year of implementation under BRI, where you know uh, from that point forward, all of the contracts include these confidentiality clauses, every single one of them, so you know there are there are a number of reasons um, why these restrictions um, are are a problem you know uh, First, they hide loans from the people who are bound to repay them uh, through via taxes. Um, but they also this kind of hidden debt can also make it difficult for developing countries to resolve debt crises. So Zambia is kind of the poster child for this problem right now. So some of its you know biggest private creditors, including bondholders, they're refusing to renegotiate um, Zambia's um, debts until they get more information about China's claims and the terms of China's debt restructuring. But the Zambian government is kind of between a rock and a hard place because they previously signed loan contracts with a variety of Chinese lenders that included these confidentiality provisions that prohibit them from disclosing the terms and conditions um, in, in those contracts, right? So um, it really kind of puts the Zambian government in an impossible position, um, you know, and and all of this is exacerbated by uh, the economic shock you know brought on by the covid covid nineteen pandemic right because covid uh, you know kind of froze a lot of economies it sapped um tax revenue, and by extension, it sapped the ability of borrower governments to repay their debts, right? So it's just made an already bad problem more acute. Second key finding uh, or takeaway from the report is that Chinese debt contracts do contain provisions that position uh, Chinese state of banks as seir- senior creditors whose loans should be repaid on a priority basis. So nearly a third of the contracts that we look at require the borrowers to maintain significant cash balances uh in bank accounts or escrow accounts many times these are offshore lender controlled accounts and these are you can think of these as kind of informal collateral arrangements that put chinese lenders at the front of the repayment line and the reason why that's the case is that the the access to these bank accounts and escrow accounts Put, allows the, gives the banks so-called set-off rights. They can simply dip into their borrowers' accounts to collect unpaid debts. So you know what we find is that Chinese lenders seem to prefer to collateralize on liquid assets. You know um, we sometimes talk about them as grab-and-go assets, like cash that borrowers deposit in Beijing-based. Um, bank Bank accounts or revenue accounts, and these are these liquid assets are attractive to Chinese lenders because they can unilaterally seize them in the event of default they don 't have to go through they don 't have to go and try to recover overdue debts through a costly or time consuming judicial process with an uncertain outcome right so when you think about all these um, Kind of uh, claims that have been circulating for years about debt trap diplomacy, a lot of them are premised on the notion that Chinese lenders have a preference for collateralizing on illiquid assets, right? A physical asset like a, a seaport or a electricity grid. Um, you know so the story goes is the is um, you know what what these chinese Chinese banks are requesting as sources of collateral, and we just don 't find very much evidence for that in these one hundred contracts that we we gained access to. Um, they really seem to value these liquid assets that don 't require you know going before a judge to try to Um, to try to recover your debts. The other thing that sort of positions these Chinese lenders as de facto senior creditors is the inclusion of um, what, what we refer to as no Paris Club clauses or no comparable treatment clauses. And these are clauses that effectively prohibit the sovereign borrower from restructuring their debts to China in coordination with Paris Club creditors um, or some of the clauses will prohibit the borrower from restructuring their debts to China um, on comparable terms with any number of official creditors or commercial creditors, including the IMF and the and the World Bank. You know, so these two things in conjunction, the use of uh, the liquid assets as collateral and these um, these clauses that basically say if you get in over your head and you can't repay your loans. Um, you you can't go – don't expect us to show up at a multilateral forum where, um, you know, we renegotiate terms in a way that is uh, – that ensures some degree of comparability across all your creditors. We're going to negotiate head-to-head bilaterally, right? So the, the takeaway, right, for the borrower is um, not all of my creditors are created equal. If I um, get in over my head, I have to repay – Um, Some lenders, you know, if I only have so much money and I can't repay all my lenders, I'm going to repay some first. Right. And if uh, some of my debts are collateralized um, and other debts are not collateralized, of course, I'm going to pay the collateralized ones um, first.
0: But that's not exceptional, though. Right. In bankruptcy, even in the United States, a bankruptcy judge does not treat all creditors the same. There is a hierarchy of creditors, and so
3: it's not that exceptional, right? Well, you know, that that is true, but, you know, really for the past uh, 60, 70 years, I- in the world of sovereign debt, there, there's this kind of de facto international norm of not asking uh, for um not asking for collateral, right? In in general, um, when, you know, the World Bank or the IMF or other official creditors lend to developing countries, they by and large do not ask for collateral precisely because, you know, it can trigger this kind of arms race where every creditor wants collateral, right? And so uh, for a long time, there's been this kind of unwritten rule that no one's going to ask for collateral. And then when a Uh, developing country borrower gets into trouble, we're all going to come together. That's the whole you know, uh, reason that the Paris Club exists, you know, um, you bring all the creditors together um, to negotiate with the borrower at the same time and ensure comparable treatment of these different debts across creditors. You know, China's never been a part of the Paris Club. They've been, they've received invitations to join. They've participated um, as a, as an observer, uh, but they're, they're not fully invested in, in the system, right? So in that respect, Maybe we shouldn't be terribly surprised that there are these explicit prohibitions against, um, you know, rescheduling uh, through through the Paris Club. But it doesn't make it any more. It doesn't make it any less challenging for developing country borrowers. Um, and then, uh, you know, the third big uh, takeaway uh, from the report is that these Chinese debt contracts. Uh, somewhat surprisingly, include clauses that really seem to be uh, seeking to limit the policy options of borrower countries. So they include broadly defined cancellation rights and repayment acceleration rights in the event that the lender uh, disagrees with the borrower's policies. So, for example, if a borrower. Uh, was to enact new regulations or legislation that negatively affected Chinese interests, which uh, tend to be defined very broadly in these contracts, Uh, that borrower would face the risk of loan cancellation, even if those Chinese interests are completely orthogonal to the, the specific project supported by the loan. Okay. Um, The other thing that is kind of unusual is that these contracts include rather expansive cross-default clauses and cross-cancellation clauses that can make it difficult for the borrower to exit uh, projects, individual projects, without risking a sort of cascade of defaults. So, for example, uh, China Development Bank contracts, they identify the cancellation of any um, PRC Investments in the borrower country, again, irrespective of whether they're related to the loan or the projects supported by the loan, they identify the cancellation of any unrelated PRC investments as an event that can trigger accelerated loan repayment. And similarly, CDB treats termination of diplomatic relations with China as an event of default. Um, so you know these things, ha- the, these clauses have the effect of sort of binding the borrower. Um, and it 's kind of a lock in device, um, if you want to think of it that way. You know we also find that these Chinese debt contracts include stabilization clauses that limit borrowing countries um, kind of room to maneuver if they want to reform their labor laws or their environmental laws and these These stabilization clauses they 're quite common in no recourse. Commercial project finance, but they're very rarely observed in government to government uh, lending arrangements, right? So the idea is like if you're a commercial lender and you are extending credit to a sovereign borrower, um, and that sovereign borrower during the course of the implementation alone decides, you know, we're going to alter our labor or environmental laws in a way that is going to impose. Um, new cost on the lender. Then you know the idea of these stabilization clauses is that the the lender gets um, compensated for those un unanticipated uh, cost increases. But it it, it uh, you know it's rare for official lenders to include these types of clauses in their contracts. You know, because, in part because now you're talking about one government entity telling another government entity what they can and cannot do with respect to their uh, labor and environmental uh, policies. And then the last thing that kind of the, – the last uh, clause that kind of falls under this banner um, of clauses that constrain the, the policy autonomy of the borrower um, are these um, – clauses that uh, um, allow for loans to be terminated in response to a vaguely defined policy change in the debtor country or in the creditor country. So uh, the a policy change clause, if, if you're not familiar with these, they, they traditionally help commercial creditors manage the risk of new legislation or, or international sanctions um, that are kind of outside of their control. However, when the, the creditor is a government agency, um, and especially when the creditor has a say in policymaking, the inclusion of one of these policy change clauses effectively becomes kind of a free exit option, uh, right, for, for the creditor. So, um, so these are all... Um, you know different variations on the same theme of clauses that uh limit the policy options of the borrower countries, so you know com- traditionally we think of um Chinese lending as you know being free from conditionality and it is free from conditionality in the in the traditional sense that when people associate um Uh, when people think of, uh, conditionality, they oftentimes, you know, associate it with things like governance related conditionalities requested by the world bank or the IMF, you know, we don't see anything like that, but we certainly do see, um, you know, some, some levers, uh, policy levers in these contracts that are designed to constrain the policy discretion of the borrower government. And I think, uh, we didn't fully appreciate, um, Uh, I think it was not commonly understood that these levers exist until we got, you know, inside the four corners of these contracts.
2: Circling back to this the issue of secrecy, you know I, I can see from the Chinese perspective why they would want to keep the the terms of of, of the loans secret, but why, why what is the kind of motivation for them to keep the entire existence of the loan itself secret
3: i, I don 't know exactly why that is uh, why that is the case. I, I think that um, we have seen individual examples of uh, the existence of a loan and the terms of a loan spilling into public view and it creating uh, a, a major headache <laughs> for these banks that they um, that they have to manage so for example um, in in Ecuador there was a very prominent case where China Development Bank was uh, negotiating a two billion dollar oil-backed loan with Ecuador's Ministry of Finance and uh, they requested that the Ministry of Finance sign a, a side letter that is separate from the loan agreement itself, um, which is essentially uh, it's called a confidentiality letter, but it, it, the, the letter codifies a set of confidentiality undertakings that the borrower agrees to. Um, and the Ecuadorian government uh, signed this letter, and no sooner had it signed the letter and the you know ink was still uh, drying on the letter that the um, somehow the terms and conditions and the scale of the loan was disclosed through a video uh, that went viral in in Ecuador and this created uh, raised uh, stirred pub- public debate and raised questions about the advisability of the Ecuadorian government uh, signing this particular loan contract which was. Um, you know, the borrowing terms were close to commercial. I think the interest rate was near 7%. So it was rather high uh, for for the uh, the Ecuadorian government. And so this did place pressure um, on, on uh, the lender to exp- explain, you know, uh, the terms and conditions. And I think CDB didn't appreciate that pressure and they made it known uh, to the, the Ministry of Finance. So Data obtained the verbatim, uh, warning letter that they wrote to um, to the borrower after the video uh, went online, uh, which and the letter uh, which we've made available through the report. There's a link a link to the letter there. Uh, it says a couple of things. First, it says, um, you know, that this video is inconvenient for us, um, and you know, the uh, w- we expect the Ecuadorian government to launch an investigation into the public officials who may have leaked the contents of the contract to the media. Uh, So that was kind of request uh, number one. Um, There was also a thinly veiled threat to withhold um, future disbursements under the loan if uh, if the Ecuadorian authorities didn't address this issue to the satisfaction of, of the lender. Um, there was also uh, a rather odd request for the Ministry of Finance to ensure that uh, the, the country's uh, auditor, uh, the public auditor, uh, release reports on previous CDB loans to Ecuador with, quote, favorable ratings. So essentially what CDB... Uh, seems to be asking for is this the the loan agreement that they had just signed in the spring of 2016 was the fourth of four consecutive oil-backed loans. And what they seem to be requesting was uh, for the Ministry of Finance to lean on an independent government institution uh, to release a report that painted the the first three loans in a favorable light, right, to uh, sort of uh, move the needle on the public uh, discussion about uh, the advisability of borrowing from uh, CDB. That uh, itself led to a huge domestic political controversy um, because uh, one of the audit reports related to uh, China, development, uh, China development bank lending was not particularly uh, flattering. And um, it later was revealed that uh, pressure was placed on uh, the auditor general from the president's office to make that public audit report vanish. And uh, the report... Uh, the audit report, which Adata has recovered and we've um, made, the, made it publicly available, it did vanish from the internet <laughs> um, shortly after this uh, this dust up in in two thousand sixteen. So, you know, I, that's sort of a circuitous way of answering your your question, but I, I think it's fair to say that some of these banks um, have been have found themselves on their back foot when. Uh, the terms and conditions and the overall um, size of, of their loans has spilled into public view. It's interesting
0: because the terms do seem rather heavy-handed. One of the emerging narratives that came out of your report in the media coverage was that the, the loans are very one-sided in China's favor. But allow me to play the devil's advocate here. Because sure. when these loans are negotiated, they're contracts. And like any contracts, there are two sides, and whether it's the Ecuadorians or Edgar Lungu in Zambia, there's agency on those sides. So if the terms are so onerous that they're, they're not fair, why is someone like Edgar Lungu signing these deals? I mean, again, this is a marketplace. No one's forcing the Kenyans, Zambians, Ethiopians, Djiboutians to take these Chinese loans.
3: You're- so if they're that bad, why are they taking them? yeah you're you're absolutely right. these contracts uh represent negotiated settlements between two parties there's no imposition of of anything upon any one. however the uh, parties to these contracts um show up to the negotiation with uh different amounts of information and different capacities right so oftentimes when um these chinese banks Enter into these loan negotiations, they hire the very best uh, sovereign debt law firms in London and Paris and New York, right? So um, they're paying for primo legal advice to ensure that these contracts are written in a way that is as favorable as possible um, for their repayment prospects and for the advancement of their commercial interests. Uh, more generally. But if you are the government of Sierra Leone, uh, you know, or the Republic of Congo, chances are when you show up to that negotiation, you haven't hired Clifford Chance Law Firm, you know, in London or Denton's uh, to represent you and, you know, basically have the world's best uh, uh, lawyers thinking about how to um, protect your interests. So there is certainly some asymmetry. Uh, when it comes to uh, the the negotiations themselves, who represents the government um, at at the table.
0: But no one can blame the Chinese for wanting to protect their interests there. And I'm not suggesting that your report does that. Your report is very balanced in terms of not making a judgment like this. But listening to what you're saying, I'm thinking to myself, if I'm loaning somebody money, I do want to make sure I get that money back. That's not unreasonable. Not at all. It, it sounds
3: actually quite smart in many respects. I mean, I don't see anything wrong with what they're doing. Yeah, no, it is. And 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 one of the takeaways from the report is that China is a commercially savvy uh, lender. They want to be repaid uh, across the board. Chinese state-owned lenders want to be repaid on time and they want to be repaid with interest. And they use all kinds of creative uh, contracting solutions, right, to um uh pursue those ends, and I, I don't think they can really be faulted for that, but it is it is also true that uh, the the borrowers do not uh, show up to the negotiating table with the same resources um, you know to protect their own interests. you know the other thing to kind of keep in mind is that uh, many of these projects are projects that uh, Western creditors and multilateral creditors and commercial creditors are are unwilling to uh support uh, for for any number of reasons and so um, you know that also uh creates a, a bit of an asymmetry in the um, in the negotiation in that you know these borrowers it, it is not as though they can just Walk away from the negotiating table and seek financing for the very same projects that many of the projects that are being supported would uh, by by Chinese lenders would not otherwise be financed um by the by non-chinese creditors.
2: In in the report you mentioned that that in some of the contracts um there is the provision that if if disclosure of the loan and the the details of the loan is mandated by by the borrowing country's um, laws then then they can be disclosed. Um and 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 you know kind of part, partly some some of the work that, that you did was also drawing on um, on public databases for in in Cameroon on on Lending, you know, kind of undertaken by the Cameroonian government, um, you know, like on, on the back of that, like you know, kind of I, I've, you know, in, in in writing to to our subscribers, um, I, I you know, I suggested that it might be a good idea for for a body like the like the African Union um, to recommend, like kind of radical transparency, to recommend to African Union member governments that that they you know that they should make kind of full transparency about their lending. The law of the land, and that in in the process China would have to to respond to that. Is, is it that simple? Like, is, is it is it simply possible for for the um, for for borrowing governments to to take that step to disclose the the loans, and for for Africa as a as a community to 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 move towards you know kind of a, a, a f- like full transparency on lending, or is that not really kind of possible in this current landscape? I,
3: I think it is that simple. I, I think uh, you know the full disclosure. I mean the main uh, The main way in which we obtained these one hundred debt co- contracts is from uh, government borrowers who have laws or regulations on the books that require. Uh, Their foreign loan contracts to be subjected to public scrutiny. Right. So, you know, we over that 36 month period where we were collecting these contracts, what we were doing was we were reaching into the debt information management systems of the borrower countries. We were going into the official legal registers of those countries, and we were scouring parliamentary websites of borrower countries. Why parliamentary websites? Because many of these countries have laws on the books that say that there needs to be parliamentary review and ratification of any foreign loan uh, contract, as though it's an international treaty between two sovereign uh, governments. So um, that's the main reason that we're able to peer inside these contracts, right? The fact that some a subset of of borrower countries have these uh, have these uh, laws on the books, and I just think it's it's a, a common sense um, policy uh, rule of thumb for developing countries uh, to follow. I mean, government borrowing it's really hard to sort of justify why government borrowing should be hidden from the people who will ultimately be responsible for loan repayment via taxes, right? Citizens and taxpayers, they should, yeah, I mean, they should have the ability to hold their governments accountable for any debt agreements that they've signed. And I mean, this is not, this argument is really has very little to do with China, right? It's It's just about public debt needing to be public. You're right, I mean, I'm, I'm just I'm, I'm a little frustrated
0: right now because the, the coverage of your report in the New York Times, the Financial Times, and most of the U.S. and European media was all about the secrecy on the Chinese side. And it was, again, it was decidedly negative on the Chinese side. I'm, you know, I'm coming back to what your co-author Anna Gelpern said. She said, Chinese lenders come across as hard-nosed negotiators, but their methods are neither unique nor unprecedented and yet we're not focusing enough attention on the on the on the borrowing side all the burden of the responsibility seems to be on the chinese side but as you pointed out there's a very simple solution here for for zambia is have the legislature pass a law that then forces transparency on it much like what by the way the nigerian debt management office does they should be credited for great transparency on on their debts and this is really seems to be more about the borrowers, the story, than it does about the creditor. It, it, I'm just trying to – I can't muster up the outrage. We're going to get, by the way, to the political ones. That's going to be very interesting. But so far on the economic side of these deals, it feels like the, the shortcomings are less on the Chinese side who are taking big risks in loaning to, to projects that, as you pointed out, the World Bank, the IMF, other Western creditors won't loan to because of any number of different reasons. The Chinese come in and say, okay – you want our cash, it's risky, we wanna make sure we get paid back, so we're gonna force you to put an escrow account, we're gonna have all these other terms and conditions, take it or leave it. If you don't want it, walk away. And yet they still sign on.
3: Yeah, I mean, I I, lar- I largely agree with, with that, but I, I think there's a, a bit of nuance that I wanna make sure doesn't doesn't get lost. Sure, so, help educate me on that, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, uh, First off, I should say we don't, we don't have any grounds to believe that if these borrowers were to – borrowers that don't have such laws or regulations on the books, we have no reason to believe that if, if they uh, get them on the books, that it's going to impinge upon their ability to borrow from China. So one thing that's kind of notable about our sample is we see serial borrowing, right, with the same lender from the same borrower, um, with no apparent penalty for um, having these transparency laws on the books. So going back to the Ecuador example, you know they they do have these laws and regulations, and they've been disclosing uh, their Chinese loan contracts. And remember, I told you they did a they did a series of four consecutive. Big-ticket loans, oil-backed loans to the Ministry of Finance in Ecuador, you know, and Ministry of Finance in Ecuador put these, uh, put these uh, loan agreements um, or they got out into the public domain in one way, shape, or form, and there was no – you know, that did not result in CDB – not lending to them anymore right so there's um, it 's not as though if borrowers were to pursue the kind of radical transparency that you you referenced, you know that it 's going to suddenly uh, result in the taps being turned off, and you know they can 't access. Um, Chinese credit. I, I guess the the other things I would say is that you know we try to be pretty careful in the report um, to to um, let folks know that what's good for the goose is good for the gander. Right? If if OECD and multilateral creditors want China to be more transparent, they really should lead by example and disclose their own loan contracts, right? So there's also some- Which they don't, by the way, correct? Very, very, sorry to interrupt
0: you, but the United States, the French government, the UK government do not have websites that publish the terms and conditions, interest rates of their concessional lending.
3: Is that correct? Uh, It's a bit more complex, but I guess what I would say is that they do not consistently disclose uh, the the terms and conditions of their loans across the board, right? They do it kind of a uh, little bit here, not over here, right? But we really do not have consistent disclosure of debt contracts from OECD creditors and multilateral creditors. So if, you know, if they're going to really, if they want to really push uh, China for greater disclosure, you know, I, I think um uh, they really need to look inward first to make sure they actually have the moral high ground. <laughs> um, but the last thing that you know, I wanted to make sure to get across is that you know, in this, one of the unique things about this report is that we're not just looking at Chinese loan contracts in isolation. We're benchmarking the terms and conditions vis a vis twenty eight non Chinese uh, creditors. And so when we do the head to head comparison. Of the confidentiality provisions in the Chinese contracts against the confidentiality provisions in the non-Chinese contracts, we do find that they are more expansive in the con- in the Chinese set than in the non-Chinese set, and and specifically, um, you know, confidentiality clauses can bind um, uh, two parties. They, they can or one of two parties. They can bind um, the, the creditor from disclosing information, say, to other creditors, or they can bind the borrower, or they can bind both, right? And one of the things that we find about the confidential, confidentiality clauses in the Chinese contracts is they're particularly expansive in, in that they bind what the borrower can do. Right. So that is an important nuance here. So, you know, um, you you could even uh, think of it as uh, China being the worst among equals when it comes to confidentiality. Right. They're not alone. (laughs) They've got peers uh, that aren't so great on sovereign debt transparency. Um, But, you know, within uh within their peer group um they they seem to go even further than everyone else um in in terms of how kind of ironclad these confidentiality provisions are
2: one of the one of the very interesting issues in in the report is this this kind of overlap between diplomatic relations with China and the terms of of, of individual loans um, so you know with within with you know with with within the 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 wider issue of for example the way that that the the, the clauses that protect the Chinese lenders against um, changes in policy do we also see there you know the the, the possibility of of a uh, you know a, like country X somewhere in the global south suddenly like so, some leader suddenly calling for for example, for an investigation into into the the origins of of COVID-19, the way that Australia did, and then facing the, the the possibility of of having loans cut off, or you know, for example, or you know, kind of criticizing China on 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 any of of its red line issues like Hong Kong or Xinjiang, or so, are, are, you know, is is, is it that clear cut that that this kind of pushback diplomatic pushback against certain kind of issues, certain aspects of Chinese foreign policy, can then lead to individual loan contracts being cancelled or, you know, other kind of punitive measures being taken.
3: So one thing I want to make clear is that our analysis is really um, focused on the contents of these loan contracts, which is kind of a snapshot in time, right, of um, what the two parties agreed to when they when they signed on the dotted line. How the contracts are enforced after the fact is a totally separate matter and, you know, a great um, avenue for future analysis. So we don't, the short answer is we don't know, um, you know, if Chinese lenders are using these um, using these contracts kind of as a cudgel to try to achieve um, broader foreign policy aims, all we can the only inferences that we can draw are based on what we actually see in the in the text, and from our analysis of the text of the agreements, the the conditions um, really do seem to be focused towards the advancement of Chinese commercial interests, right? So these these cross cancellation clauses and cross default clauses, a lot of times they're they're linking to um, the commercial interests of quote. Any PRC entity, right? So, if I've signed, let's say, you know, I'm a borrower and I've signed a two billion dollar loan with China Exim Bank or China Development Bank, um, my, uh, you know, my project uh, being supported by this particular loan, uh, its fate um, is uh, essentially being linked to other commercial. Uh, other projects or commercial investments, you know, that uh, may not even be uh, funded by the same lender. It, it just happens to be a a, a Chinese project or Chinese investment in the same country. And so essentially what that is doing is it, it's hemming in the borrower, right? It's constraining the borrower um from deviating from what they originally agreed to so to give you like a practical example of how, what this looks like um, you know we we uh, obtain this documentary evidence um, a, through letter correspondence um, between the Argentinian government and China Development Bank and you know what we found was um, the Christina Kirshner administration they went on a Borrowing spree and you know contracted a lot of uh, loans with Chinese state-owned banks. Then, when when Christina Kirshner exited power and uh, the McCree administration came in, they sort of reviewed the portfolio of loans and they wanted to pick and choose. Okay, they they looked at some contracts and some some projects being supported by the contracts and said, "We like that one. We don't want that. We don't like this one," right? And so they announced um, that they wanted to uh, suspend. Uh, a big ticket loan that was financed by uh, it was financed by China Development Bank and within uh, a few months of making this announcement, they got a letter in the mail from China Development Bank, and the letter basically said, um, Welcome to Power, read the fine print in your contract because they really sent it by the mail? Well, it's a it's a whether they transmitted it. I mean, we have the scanned <laughs> copy of the letter. I don't know if it was transmitted wow, okay. by post or via okay. email nowadays. But, you know, they got a, a physical letter um, and, um, you know, that letter basically says, uh, you know, uh, we, we'd we like to have good a good relationship with you. Um, the These projects that you're reviewing are high priorities of the Chinese Communist Party. And um, you know we understand that you've expressed your intention to suspend one of the largest uh, projects in the portfolio, but w- we would really encourage you to go and read the clause in your contract that links the cancellation of this project. To the other projects that you don't want to suspend, and you know, no sooner had they received this letter, you know, within within I think a matter of weeks, the McCree administration reversed course and said, "Never mind, not going to suspend this project." Right, and so what's that sort of net effect? Um, the the project that they wanted to suspend. They wanted to su- suspend on environmental grounds because it was n- near a UNESCO heritage site. It was a, a dam project, um, and so essentially, you know, the bank, China Development Bank, walked them back from the uh, walked them back from promises that they made during the electoral season, right? Environmental pro- promises. They wanted to kind of change the environmental policy direction or orientation of the government. You know, came into power, tried to make it happen, and uh, they were frustrated in their attempts to do that because of the existence of this cross cancellation clause, which frankly they probably didn't even know existed until they got that letter in the mail. But again, that's their fault for not reading the fine print. I can't say in
0: my home mortgage that I didn't know that I have to pay on the 1st of the month. I thought I could pay on the 15th of the month. The burden's on me to know that about my own contract.
3: Indeed, but in the in the um in a sovereign debt setting where you and when the sovereign debtor is a democratically elected government when you have Turnover, Right. You go from one government to another. You know, when the new finance minister is appointed, he or she is not necessarily uh, up to speed on what the previous finance minister signed on to. Then people shouldn't borrow money from the Chinese. That's that's the moral of this lesson.
2: But also, I mean, you know, but governments also have, you know, have the prerogative to 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 keep evolving and, and keep reshaping their legislation. You know, so so for example, in, in, in this case around environmental issues. But then they shouldn't sign deals that box them in. I mean, you're right. I
0: agree with you in principle, but I'm just saying then they shouldn't sign a deal that boxes them in, knowing that their governments are dynamic and evolving. I mean it just seems I don't know what what I'm where I'm coming from on this, but I just I'm a little frustrated in the sense that the burden is on the Chinese to to not do that, but it, the burden's also on the governments not to sign bad, bogus deals that are not in their long term interest.
3: And, and I think to I think to that point, I mean, uh, my hope is that the publication of our report, if nothing else, uh, will hopefully just um kind of get borrowers to wisen up a little bit and and uh think twice before they sign on the dotted line and make sure that they go over these clauses carefully to ensure that uh they understand the consequences of what they're they're signing on to. I mean I, I think it's um you know the the other sort of challenging thing on the borrower side is that uh, Chinese banks sort of position themselves as commercial lenders, and some of these, um, some of these clauses are boilerplate in a commercial lending setting, right? So, like a cross cancellation clause, cross default clause, very commonplace in commercial lending. But when you're dealing with um with a a, a political entity, a public sector entity that has kind of broader A broader set of interests that it's trying to protect, then these clauses kind of take on new meaning and new potency, right? And so that's where I think there's just a scope for the borrowers to educate themselves a little bit about, um, you know, what these, what the implications of these different clauses are.
0: And Kobus, to your question earlier about whether there's a commercial or a political in the sense, I, my personal opinion, and again, this is nothing to do with the report, is that there's always a political angle. And the fact that the CDB letter to Argentina mentioned the Chinese Communist Party uh, is evidence of that. And so to me, politics and, and commerce go hand in hand in China. So I suspect that there is a, a, a very strong political angle. Although the actors in the contract are economically or commercially driven, that doesn't mean the politics aren't necessarily close behind somewhere there. You did get some reaction from the Chinese government on this. Uh, It was mentioned at the regular press briefing by uh, foreign ministry spokeswoman Hua Chunyin. In fact, Xinhua asked a question about it. My guess it was probably an orchestrated question. And she gave a, a boilerplate answer that actually didn't address the report, which was very interesting. It talked about their G20 lending. And it talked about all sorts of things that were not actually mentioned in the report. However, Wu Peng, who is the the top diplomat in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs for Sub-Saharan Africa, a former ambassador to Sierra Leone and also to Kenya, he addressed you on Twitter and just the group. And let me just read his tweet, and I'd like to get your reaction from it. He said, I noticed that some scholars wrote a paper titled How China Lends. I'm not a banker, but I was the Chinese ambassador to Sierra Leone just a few years ago. I want to remind the authors of two facts, although they may already know them. The contract for Queen Elizabeth II K project mentioned in the paper has never entered into effect, and this never happened. The project should not be used as a case. Number two, given that it's a public-private partnership, Chinese financial institutions provide loans to a private company, not the government. So Ambassador Wu seems like he's trying to cast some doubt onto your methods and onto the report. How would you respond to the ambassador?
3: I would say that um, you know he he has zeroed in on one of the one hundred contracts, um, and just to um, bring all of your listeners up to kind of a common uh, baseline, informational baseline, what he's referring to is a syndicated loan from China Exim Bank and um, ICBC to a project company or uh, a special purpose vehicle that was responsible for implementing a, uh, a seaport uh, project in Sierra Leone. The, uh, the loan was, um about 650 million dollars and the authors of how china lends when we obtained the loan contract the unredacted loan contract we we had to make a judgement call in this case because the borrower he is correct the borrower is not the government of sierra leone however the ministry of finance of sierra leone issued a sovereign guarantee to the borrower, to the project company, essentially saying, if you go belly up, this becomes public debt, right? And um, so, in this case, this would, you know, this would be the single largest loan um, or liability, um, you know, ever to go onto the Sierra Leonean government's books. It's equivalent to fifteen percent of the country's GDP. Um, so you know, for all intents and purposes to us, you know, this look like public debt because it's basically saying if this shell company that's been established to implement this project, you know, can't repay the loan just through the revenue generation of the the project itself from the seaport that, you know, um, the Ministry of Finance is standing ready with a bag of cash ready to repay the loan, right? So, um, and this is a broader issue with with Chinese lending. There's a ton of official lending from China that goes to um, state-owned companies or project companies, but with the provision of a side uh, guarantee from the central government, right? Which essentially creates a contingent liability on the books of, of the host government. So I think, you know, the, um, uh, the official from the Ministry of Finance or the Ministry of Foreign Affairs is correct that this one particular contract, um, was not issued to a sovereign borrower, but I think, um, you know, the, the, the loan itself, um, sure looks a lot like sovereign debt, um, or something that could very easily become, uh, sovereign debt. In in terms of his kind of second argument that um, the the project, um, you know, never came to pass, and so it should not be included in the analysis. Um, I, I don't, I have to say, I, I just don't agree with um, this argument, because, uh, you know, the focus of our project is not on how projects are implemented. The focus is on how China lends. So the fact that they signed this loan contract and they designed it the way that they did is material, right? That is still something that merits scrutiny. This, again, would have been the largest loan ever issued, um, you know, to Sierra Leone, a very high stakes um, project. The project, in fact, did enter implementation. There was a project commencement ceremony in Um, November 2017, construction, initial construction began about a month later, and then when um, it was revealed that uh, the IMF kind of sounded the alarm uh, that a sovereign guarantee had been issued and this could become public debt, it was also revealed that the owner of the shell company, the project company that was technically speaking the borrower, um, was an Israeli businessman who had just a year later made political contributions to the president of Sierra Leone, right? So um, that aroused a lot of suspicion about this arrangement. So I think the combination of, um, you know, the the opacity of the debt, the opacity of the sovereign guarantee is really what um, kind of stopped the project in its tracks. Um, and while it, you know, it did, um, kind of initially get started it was halted after some of these controversies emerged but i don 't think that makes the terms and conditions inside the four corners of the contract any less relevant, right because it tells us how Chinese lenders seek to craft these arrangements um, with their with their
2: borrowers the presence of of the no paris club clauses in, in these in these loans puts China in an interesting position in, in 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 terms of the the fact that it's also participating in the G twenties D GSSI initiative. Um so I was wondering kind of a broad question, but I was wondering, you know, how how do you think the the Paris Club should respond to 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 this this you know way that, that China is is lending, um, particularly you know like on the on the one hand as as you pointed out you know kind of it's it's the, the the simply calling for China to to join Paris Club standards doesn't seem sufficient particularly because there's so many problematic aspects you know in um, among other Paris Club members lending as well it's like there's high levels of opacity on on other sides too, um, so so you know like with, with 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 China's China's presence as as a big lender now pretty well established, you know, despite kind of fluctuations up and down, um, how how do you think the Paris do you think the Paris Club system as it's sitting at the moment, um, you know, is you know how, how is it affected by this role of China and how do you think it should be reformed?
3: Well, I think the um, you know the Paris Club creditors are in a in a difficult spot because you know they're they're learning for the first time that or they're they're seeing now with their own eyes through the the publication of these contracts that they're effectively junior creditors right so they had put down their arms chose not to collateralize and now right and chinese creditors right um not Bound by any of the norms of the paris club they 've been um, busy collateralizing a lot of these debts, so I think um, that creates uh, you know some real awkwardness <laughs> let 's say um, in the context of the g20 s common framework because you know Chinese ministry of finance officials they 've been si- signaling recently a willingness to cooperate through the common framework um, you know and I think what our um, What our analysis shows is that there's a disconnect between the actual debt contracts that are being issued by the country's state-owned banks um, and the rhetoric that we're hearing from uh, China's Ministry of Finance um, in terms of um, wanting to be a part of the, the common framework. And so this could simply be a lag between policy announcement and policy implementation you know, another interpretation of it is that um, it's policy incoherence, right? These banks are very, they're big, powerful, um, relatively autonomous institutions. You know, it may be that Ministry of Finance knows what it wants to do, (laughs) but it takes time for this to kind of um get implemented through the actual lending institutions and then another you know perhaps the least charitable explanation is that there's just a real gap between rhetoric and behavior and there's some degree of disingenuousness going on we say one thing in an international fora and we do another thing within the you know within the confines of a contract um protected by confidentiality requirements so i think only time will tell if that that gap that we know exists between their rhetoric and their action shrinks, right? So I think that's something we need to um, very closely monitor. So, you know, my co authors and I, uh, we stopped collecting these loan contracts. Um, you know, just for the purposes of uh getting the report done, I think third week or fourth week of January. Um, but but just in the last few weeks, we've sort of ramped up the the contract collection machine again, and we're starting to collect additional contracts beyond the initial one hundred. Um, for for uh, some contracts that were you know signed only very recently. And so I think as we uh, are able to review more contracts from 2020 and 2021, that will provide more of an evidentiary basis to say, look, do we see them changing the way that they, um, the way that they craft these contracts in, um, such that uh, th- their rhetoric and their, their action kind of come into to closer alignment. One of your
0: co-authors, Scott Morris, who's a senior fellow at the Center for Global Development, he said that the report's findings were, quote, clearly at odds with China's commitments under G20 agreements. So it's interesting that that's the, uh, that's the take. And there's and David Malpass, who's the president of the World Bank, he has said repeatedly over the past year that even though the Chinese are participating in the G20 DSSI process, they are still not sharing enough information and there's not enough collaboration. So there is a big disconnect. At the same time, the Chinese foreign ministry keeps coming out with statistics saying they are doing more in the DSSI and they have deferred more debt than any other Creditor. So there is this real disconnect, and it'll be interesting to see in the next one to two years when you guys publish, hopefully, updates on this, because this is absolutely essential reading for anybody interested in understanding China's lending practices. The report is called How China Lends. It was written by a coalition, Aid Data at William & Mary College, the Kiel Institute for the World Economy in Germany, the Center for Global Development, and the Peterson Institute for International Economics in Washington, D.C. You can download it at aiddata.org. I have links to that in the show notes. Brad Parks is the executive director over at AidData. Brad, if people want to follow what you are reading and writing these days and connect with AidData, what's the best way for them to get in touch?
3: Best way to get in touch is probably at info at aiddata.org. Um, we, we track incoming queries uh, through that email address. And yeah, we welcome any and all feedback on, on the report. Excellent. And you guys are also on Twitter as well, right? We are at a data. A I D D A
0: T A. And are you on Twitter? I, I am not
3: individually on Twitter.
0: Really? You're the one or two people left in Washington, not on Twitter. Okay. It's I, the I secret heard about to my you productivity. <laughs> yes, I can imagine. I support you all wholeheartedly. <laughs> thank you so much for taking the time. Hopefully it won't be four years again before you come back and join us. Uh, it was really great to speak with you. We had another full hour of questions, but we know we got to let you go and with your day. But we really appreciate your time.
3: Yeah, thank you so much. It, it was it was good fun.
0: Kobus, for years on this show, we have been saying that the Chinese are playing by a different set of rules. And we, in the outside, don't always understand what those rules are. If you want to understand what that means and what that actually looks like in practice, read this report, because that is the different set of rules that they're playing by. And the fact that we, on the outside, have not taken the time to understand those rules, to me, is the burdens on all of us and on African Amer- Latin American, South Asian borrowers who, who go into those contracts. The, you, you know, And again, they said it over and over again in the report that Chinese lenders come across as hard-nosed negotiators. Now, I'm not saying this to defend the Chinese. I'm not supporting the Chinese. I couldn't care less. That's not the point. The point here is that it's a different set of rules and I get the sense that people in Paris are clutching their pearls because they're not playing by our rules and they're not used to being the second in the hierarchy of lenders. And I think they're getting outplayed. I'm baffled by what I heard now from Brad and Mm. the coverage that I read in the Financial Times, the Washington Post, and all the media. Because total disconnect. He brought a lot of nuance that was missing from a lot of that coverage, where it was just China is onerous in its lending. It is onerous. They are playing by heavy-handed rules, totally. But at the end of the day, it's a contract and nobody is forcing the Lungu government to accept those terms. There's agency that has to be accountable there, in my view.
2: Yeah, that's the that's the opposite. That's the other side of the African agency debate, right? Is you know, it's, it's, it's not only African governments' decision-making power, but also African governments being on the hook for for their decisions. Um, you know, so 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 there's a lot there that that's that's about a kind of weak weak political enforcement in Africa. You know, we you know kind of it's it's the you know governments frequently stay stay um, in power, not necessarily because they're good governments, um, and then all of the secrecy that that is also demanded by Chinese creditors end up playing into the hands of African leaders as well. You know, African leaders are addicted to secrecy; it's like a drug in Africa. And you know, and 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 so, so kind of, you know, for African civil society, I think to push for for more proactive disclosure is is a really important step. I think you know for for the future of for the future of the continent, but you know, at this at the same time, you know. I, you know, I I think yes. Like on on, on the one hand, like what well, you know, I, I agree with you that that the that w- what we're going to have to see is is global governments becoming a lot more scrappy, or like particularly global South governments. I mean, to beca- need to become a lot more scrappy and li- really to drive much harder bargains and need to to draw in kind of other resources. Like like Brad was pointing out, the Chinese come. Armed with all of these law firms in Paris and London, you know, and 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 African governments need to do the same. Um, but on the other hand, like you know, I think I think it also needs to force a, a much wider conversation about lending itself, because because as we have been pointing out, it's th- th- there's no point in simply insisting that China needs to join kind of Paris Club conventions, because in a lot of ways the Paris Club, Paris Club conventions are themselves not 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 great, you know. So 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 in that sense, you know, kind of I think. Like everyone, this is the kind of reckoning that everyone has to has to deal with. Not only the Chinese, and and certainly not only the Africans.
0: It also blows a hole in the whole Chinese rhetoric on win-win, because this is not win-win. I mean, there there's no way that you can spin these contracts as saying it's win-win, and this has been the criticism of win-win, because it does feel like the Chinese win twice: is that they're loaning the money, and then they're also providing. The EPC contractors, those are the construction companies. So everybody on the Chinese side of the ledger is coming up really, really strong. And the African side is getting a piece of infrastructure, but at what cost? And because the fact that other creditors did not want to loan money for those projects, then the Chinese are able to charge a premium for that. So it it just doesn't feel like win-win in that respect. And I think that blows a hole in that narrative on the politics side. I do believe that politics is very much a part of these agreements. And the fact that they have these very interventionist types of of, of clauses in there that says that if something is adverse to the interests of of the People's Republic of China entity, that is so vaguely worded, it could be absolutely anything. And do you remember a couple months ago, actually maybe it was six, seven months ago, we talked about how I met a scholar in Beijing at at Peking University at one of the think tanks there who said that they didn't want to cancel the debt in part because they wanted to have leverage. And this was the idea that they wanted to make sure that if an African country decided to flirt with the Dalai Lama or kind of go on the wrong side of Xinjiang, it's these coercive types of policies that are there. That language is part of the coercive diplomacy that the Chinese engage. And so it might explain in part why so many African countries or developing countries are quiet on these sensitive, what I call the 4T, HK, XJ issues. Those are the core interest red lines. 4T, Taiwan, Tibet, Tiananmen Square, the party, HK, Hong Kong, XJ uh, Xinjiang and now the South China Sea. That's my mnemonic device that I use. Four T H thk Like it's
2: it's impossible to use that for me to. And remember. Like it's I, getting I, longer I too. By the way, the it used to be just four
0: T H K. Then it became X J. Then it became S. So who knows where this is going to go?
2: I, like in the past, in the past, I I remember sitting going like, is it three? Or no, four it's four T's. Four T's. Like, it, where four does
0: four T's. So, <laughs> but I wonder if that is part of the calculation that a lot of these smaller African governments are are looking at their, their debt portfolios, they are actually looking at the fine print, possibly, and saying, you know what, we're not going to take an issue or a position on Xinjiang because it potentially exposes our debt to big problems. I don't know if they're looking at it. It doesn't seem like they're reading the fine print very very carefully, but I don't separate the politics from the deals. I think it's all wrapped up in one giant salad bowl.
2: Yeah, I, I agree with you. And, you know, kind of, and I think it it might not even be that they that they're particularly looking at these clauses in these deals. That the, the fact that they're so so dependent on trade from you know with China already means that they that they're not going to touch these red line issues, and you know so and and it all just kind of like extends leverage further and further. I think one you know one of the big one of the big issues in in relation to all of this is again it's it you know it it it, it raises the question of why do these governments then enter into these, these agreements at all and i think one one answer is because they have so few options um you know like one one of the kind of most insane i think aspects of of the entire development landscape and and one that that i think that china's role as 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 exposed is that before china came along it was essentially a situation where where all of these government all of these these different development developing government um, developing country government decisions about what particular way they want to move their development forward and whether they need a port or not whether they need a dam or not all of those all of those decisions and all of the kind of ability to move were, were was locked inside this kind of wider relationship between Africa and its former either colonial or or kind of new Imperial you know masters in the West um you know there, there was no Way of, of unlocking the 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 kind of history of the relationship between Africa and and those and those powers with the decision making of African governments now, China kind of threw a bomb into that into that landscape, um, you know by 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 offering another option. But but when one sees how kind of unfavorable these options actually are, then it also reveals, you know like like the, the kind of like the narrowness of of the options available to these governments to begin with. It
0: reminds me a little bit of and I don't know if you have these in South. Africa. But in the United States, we have these things called payday lenders. And they go into poor communities and they loan money at exorbitant interest rates. But again, this is they're catering to the unbanked. They're catering to people with terrible credit. They're catering to poor people who don't have any other options. So the same way that we're looking at Zambia and saying, why on God's green earth would you take a loan from the Chinese? With all of these stipulations, all of these clauses— in some ways, it's like a payday lender because there's no other choice. And we look at the people borrowing from these payday lenders and think it's 30% interest. How can you pay that back? And it just and didn't you read the fine print? And, did, and they said, well, I needed the money right now to get out of the fix that I'm in today. And I'll worry about tomorrow, tomorrow. Well, tomorrow comes and you owe a lot more money. And in some ways, it's taking advantage of the poverty. And that's, again, where I think the Chinese fall short on their win-win rhetoric, is yes, there's higher risk to lending to certain African countries, but these clauses do seem like they go farther than they need to go in some instances, particularly on some of these political clauses and the limitation on some of the policy rights. It also challenges, I'd like your take on this, it really confronts the non-interference doctrine that China's so proud of not interfering in the internal affairs of other countries. But I guess that does not include when you borrow money from the Chinese. Because maybe the Chinese are connected. I mean, if you borrow money from the Chinese, they get to say in Argentina whether or not you're going to proceed with this environmentally destructive project. They get to say, if you cancel X loan, we're going to cancel, you know, ABC loans. That is, you know, highly interventionist in terms of their, of their politics. So... Absolutely fascinating. Let's get your final thoughts before we go.
2: Well, you know, I, I think yeah, it's 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 completely it's it's fascinating and 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 aspects of it is really dismaying. Um, I think I think it's really important. It's going to become increasingly important for for global south governments to just be a lot more scrappy and a lot more proactive. Um, we've seen limited victories here and there. You know, kind of we've seen you know bad projects cancelled occasionally, like in Lamu in Kenya, for example. We've seen. Pushback from from yeah, newly but not elected. because the
0: loan that was cancelled because of the of the environmental Tribune by yes, a court case. Yes,
2: but you know, like cancelled anyway. You know, it's like um, the um, you know we've, we've seen pushback from, from newly elected leaders like in Malaysia, for example. Um, so so there, there are examples, and, and you know this example of Cameroon, you're disclosing all of its loan information between between you know congratulations
0: two to Cameroon. Yes. Yeah, rock on Cameroon.
2: Yeah, you know, so, so all of those are those are kind of it's it's possible to do. It's just one just has to do it and and i think to do it to take that step takes courage um and you know these governments will have to push back not only against china but against against all of these other lenders as well you know it's like this the, the international financing landscape is just messed up and and one one needs one needs new instruments and new new forums i think
0: Credit to the Debt Management Office in Nigeria again. They are the benchmark, in my view, of debt transparency in Africa, and I think they deserve an enormous amount of credit. Shame on the U.S. and European governments for insisting on the transparency from the Chinese, but yet they themselves do not practice that, as we've heard, not only from Brad, but from any number of people. If they're going to criticize the Chinese, they need to lead by example, and they need to do a better job of making their own lending to be far more transparent than it is, not just to a team of Ph.D. scholars at Kerry who can go through databases, but simple, easy-to-understand Uh, Ways to comprehend what they're doing and the loans, the terms, the interest rates, all of that. So that would be very interesting to, to see as well. Last point is that for all the talk about the United States wanting to confront what they call the malign influence of China in Africa, it seems to me that the best thing that the United States and the Europeans and the Japanese can do if they really want to challenge the Chinese is to invest in training African negotiators so they get better deals. That is a no-brainer in my view. Give them access to the same lawyers that the Chinese are getting in London and New York and Paris. Bring them into training sessions, but not training sessions into Washington or New York. Get them training sessions with people who've actually negotiated with the Chinese. I used to work in China in a very big company And when I was working back in the day with Ford Motor Company, and there are so many experienced people who worked with Ford who actually had all this experience managing the joint venture. Those are the kinds of people that you want to train people in Africa. Not some guy from USAID who doesn't know anything about the Chinese. So really experienced people who have had experience dealing with the Chinese, negotiating with the Chinese, get them to do training sessions in places like Zambia, in Botswana and other places. That, to me, would have a meaningful impact. Uh, and by the way, I suspect it will actually help the China-Africa relationship more broadly simply because uh, they'll get better deals. Everybody will be happy. It will be more sustainable in the long run. So that'll do it for this edition of the show. Before we go, we want to remind you about our newsletter uh, Kobus was talking about all the different things that he's been writing in it he writes two columns a week I write all of the other stuff every day the deep dive into the China Africa China Middle East we talk a lot about what's going on in the Americas now so if you're interested in what China's doing in the global south more broadly with Africa at the heart of that then this newsletter is perfect for you. We've got a 20% discount just for our podcast listeners because you've made it all the way till the end of the show. So we want to give you a little bit reward. And by the way, that's a 20% discount on a lifetime subscription. So year after year after year, you'll get the 20% off. Just go to chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. If you're a journalist, a scholar, a diplomat, you're in the aid business, you're in the intelligence business, that's the people who are reading it today. You will definitely love it. And if you're just somebody who loves international affairs and just want to follow what the Chinese are doing, then this is an ideal newsletter for you. Once again, ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. Okay, Kobus and I will be back again next week with another show. Until then, for Kobus van Staden, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening.
1: The discussion continues online. Head over to Facebook.com slash Project to share your thoughts on today's show. Or follow the guys on Twitter, Eric's at Iolanda, and you can find Kobas at Stadenesk. For more information about the China Africa Project and to sign up for our free weekly email news brief, go to ChinaAfricaProject.com.